Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with physician and novelist Abraham Verghese and education researcher Denise Pope. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Good evening, everyone. Yeah, this one person said it. Let's try it again. Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's lovely. I'm Harry Elam. I'm the Senior Vice Provost for, undergra- for Education and the Vice Provost uh, for Undergraduate Education. And welcome to this evening. And on behalf of Stanford University, I welcome you to the 2019 Mimi and Peter Haas Distinguished Visitor Lecture. Yes, thank <laughs> This year's Distinguished Visitor is Krista Tippett. She is a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster, as I'm sure you all know, a National Humanities Medalist, and a New York Times best-selling author. She founded and leads the On Being Project, hosts the On Being public radio show and podcast, and curates the Civil Conversations Project, an emergent approach to conversation and relationships across the differences of our age. Krista grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, attended Brown University, became a journalist and a diplomat in the Cold War Berlin, and later received a Master of Divinity from Yale University. Her books include Becoming Wise, An Inquiry into the Mystery and the Art of Living. I love that title. Einstein's Einstein's God, Conversations about Science and the Human Spirit. And we are thrilled to have Krista in residence at the Haas Center for Public Service during the duration of the winter quarter. I'd like to thank Mimi Haas for her vision and leadership in working with us to establish the Mimi and Peter Haas Distinguished Visitor Program that brings visionary global leaders to campus. Thank you. Now, Krista will introduce them more formally and more fully, but I'd like to thank my colleagues, Denise Pope from the Stanford Graduate School of Education and Abraham Verghese from the Stanford Medicine for being a part of today's event. And they're somewhere over there. I took my glasses off, I can't see them. (laughs) Thanks also to the Haas Center for hosting and many department centers and organizations for co-sponsoring today's event, focused on public service and the university. And we'd like to welcome all those watching the event by live stream this evening. We will host a video on the Haas Center public website, and the event is also being audiotaped for global audience for the On Being broad podcast. Today's discussion focuses on how emerging generations are redefining the word success. What we know is that for so many students and for all of us, meaningful service to others can be central to that definition. In some ways, this quest for meaningful and purposeful engagement is timeless. At the university's founding, Jane Stanford shared her hope and trust that Stanford would not only qualify students for personal success and direct usefulness in life, but also to become of greater service to the public. 
And today, in, defining a, moment in, in a defining moment in the history of the university, the nation, and the world, Stanford is supporting students through Cardinal Service, a university-wide initiative to elevate and expand services and service as a distinct feature of a Stanford education. Cardinal Service is helping students develop the knowledge and skills to tackle global problems and challenges and enabling them to develop an impactful sense of civic identity. In shaping one's civic identity, especially in a moment so politically fraught, in a nation so polarized, Krista Tippett's insights into how to have a civil conversation are generous, imaginative, and generative conversations across difference are so very productive and even indispensable. We look forward to hearing from Krista and the Stanford leaders she's about to be in conversation with today. So please join me in welcoming to our stage the 2019 Mimi and Peter Haas Distinguished Visitor, Krista Tippett. say first of all what an honor it is that you all are here because I've been at Stanford three weeks and I now know there are about a hundred thousand other events going on at exactly this time. <laughs> I don't take your presence for granted. Um, and also uh, I was saying to Abraham and Denise before we started that we have over the last few years the On Being podcast has uh, gathered this really beautiful cross-generational audience and that's what I'm proud of that there are 18-year-olds and 80-year-olds. And I also see that in this room today, and that makes me very happy. Um, a little, so yeah, I should explain that this has been billed as a lecture, and the suggestion of the Haas Center, which I found intriguing, was that we, um, that, that the, that we adapt uh, the form of the lecture for this year to a conversation, which is my, um, which is a medium I love. And um, I'll say a little bit more about these wonderful people who've joined me here in just a minute. I want to say, first of all, just give an outline of what's going to happen. Um, we will speak up here for about 50 minutes. Um, we will open it up for, uh, and I, I really, this feels very important to me, for questions and thoughts that are in the room. A student, um, Sam, is going to come up and... Um, and present those questions, and I assume there will be, and, and my producer, is that, are you Sam? I haven't met you yet. Okay, there he is. <laughs> and, uh, and my executive producer, Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, who is with him, and they will kind of go through those, and so we'll have a bit of exchange with you in that way, and then we'll come back up here and finish the conversation, because we are, um, because we are hoping it's also an hour of radio, so we will close out the radio hour. And of course, the technologies that were in large part invented here have turned radio into podcasting. <laughs> um, well, I should also say what a, uh, an honor it is to be at the Haas Center for Public Service uh, this semester. It's, uh, it's an utter adventure, and I'm learning so much, and, and I also feel like it will be, like my definition of, one definition of success for me will be if I start to know my way around campus by the end. <laughs> 
And the topic for tonight is success, the meaning of success, and how this has shifted and may again be shifting generationally. Success has a lot to do with what we attend to and what we reward. And we came out of the 20th century rewarding external accomplishment. Right to left, rich to poor in America at least, we pay homage to success measured by wealth and power and celebrity. We pay homage to big external lives. And what I think about a lot and what concerns me is that somewhere along the way, in that process, we made interior life optional. Not merely private, but optional. Um, we prioritized questions in our, in, in, our, in our personal lives and in society of what and when over how and why and to what human purpose. From where I sit, we have all together raised a few generations of humans on an ideal of success that is at odds with actually what we know of wisdom. And interestingly, it's also at odds with what we are now on our cutting edges, on our scientific and medical frontiers, learning about what we're understanding about everything from the power of rest to the interactivity between our minds and bodies and emotions, the capacity we have now to grasp, as much as we ever have before in its fullness, human well-being and flourishing and wholeness. I was really struck in Denise's book um, uh, by where, she, where she interviewed um, high school students in California. Um, on their experience of success, um, their, their experience of high school, and Eve, who talked about uh, being in high school, the whole notion of the survival of the fittest makes a lot of sense, makes intuitive sense. And she wasn't actually talking about the social scene. She was talking about grades pressure. Um, but this is another thing. Our understanding of evolution right now in the early 21st century is evolving we are grasping that the advance of our species has not been driven solely by anything so simple and linear and crass as merely the survival of the fittest. As my 25-year-old daughter pointed out to me, enlightened me, when I had a conversation with her about this, she said, we are re revisiting the definition of what fit means. Taking in that the genius of our species is as much in its superpowers of cooperation and interdependence, of generosity beyond kin and tribe, as in our muscles of fighting and winning. And these qualities are absolutely urgent and essential if we as societies and as species are to grapple with the greatest challenges before us in this century, whether that is grappling with a changing climate or remaking politics or reinventing whatever common life can mean in this century, in our globalized world. The thing is, what I'm describing is also a better way to live. It's a more pleasurable way to live. It privileges, alongside those concrete things we can measure, it privileges immeasurable experiences, social and spiritual capacities like friendship 
and courage and dignity, hospitality, presence, to use a word that Abraham Verghese uses often, resilience, to use a notion that Denise Pope is working on. So what we're talking about here today, I would audaciously state, is how we are equipping our children and ourselves for I think that we are all millennials, we are all turn of century people. It's a mindset as much as an age group. <laughs> How we are equipping ourselves to continue to reframe and live into the core questions that have always animated the human search for meaning. And these happen to be my favorite questions. What does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? I am so happy to be joined by Denise Pope and Abraham Verghese. Um, Denise is a senior lecturer in the Graduate School of Education here. She is a researcher steeped in the topic of success and its meaning in the lives of the young among us. And um, you can summarize some of her perspective, I think, in, by noting the title of her project that emerged from her research, Challenge Success, and that, that challenge is a confrontational verb, <laughs> and the title of her book, Doing School, How We Are Creating a Generation of Stressed Out, Materialistic, and Miseducated Students. Um, she also helped start the Resilience Project here at Stanford. Abraham Verghese is an esteemed professor of medicine and physician. He founded and directs the Presence Project at Stanford. And he's also, just in case you haven't heard, uh, a best-selling, uh, globally renowned writer of fiction and nonfiction. Of course, there is his wonderful novel, Cutting for Stone, but also two beautiful autobiographical works, The Tennis Partner and My Own Country. And I would say that among other things, these books touch deeply on the art and challenge of being alive and on the complexity and costs of success. So I want to just begin um, with you, Denise, just asking about um, your earliest memory of what success looks like. Perhaps who embodied that for you? Mm. And so what that meant to you. And also I'm curious about if even then, what questions it raised in you. Mm -hmm. And by the way, where did you grow up? I am a valley girl. I grew up in Southern California okay. in a little town called Tarzana, named because uh, the writer of the Tarzan movies lived there. Um, yes, and a noble uh, lineage. It's, there you go. <laughs> We're next to Encino, which is what most people think of as sort of the valley girl. Um, and success for me, so I, my grandparents were immigrants, and came. My grandfather came to America from Poland and had nothing. He was, I think, nine when he moved here, and he. Um, with his parents, my great-grandparents, made something of themselves. And I think for what was always put through our heads, everyone in my family, is success is, you know, coming, coming with nothing and finding community and being the head of a family and using education. He, he actually went to college for a year or two before having to drop out. So it, it was ingrained in me, that very early sense of success, was tied up with sort of education and being able to make right. it, but that's because the opposite was 
poverty and and you know not being educated. So that that's probably my first memory is that my my grandfather was definitely the um, patriarch of the family and a vision of of success. Uh-huh. Um, Abraham, you were your parents were Indian, but you grew up m- m- mostly in Ethiopia. Is that right? That's right. Yes, yeah. my parents were school teachers in Ethiopia. Okay, what? Did success look like to you? How did you think about it when you were growing well, up? I was trying to formulate my answer while Denise was speaking. And, uh, <laughs> oh, you were luckier. You know, I had we're, to go we're doing, we're doing thinking out loud here. <laughs> it was actually fairly straightforward for, for me because uh, middle-class Indian parents, I always think, are very much like uh, Jewish parents in that you can be a doctor, a lawyer, or a failure. These are your options. Uh, <laughs> uh, one more. You can be an engineer, doctor, lawyer, engineer, or failure. So... Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, they, they, my parents had come to Ethiopia precisely because there were not opportunities for them after all the hardship of pursuing an education. And, uh, you know, they made this grand voyage across to another continent. And so they were driven by that measure of success for good reasons, I think. Mm-hmm. And I certainly took that to heart and, you know, became a physician in part because of that and because I had no head for math, so the engineering was out of the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also because I, I valued that sense of a calling, a profession. You did also, you have told a story that, um, I guess you have two also successful siblings, and that somebody had asked your mother, what did you do to raise these successful children? And she said, I did nothing, I prayed. I prayed yes. And you kind of felt like that was the right tack to yes, take. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that was entirely true. It was, uh, <laughs> ah, okay, I'm glad we were able to correct that thing that's out there on the internet. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, I always worry about when any conversation kind of veers into the kids these days mode. And so, but that's not what we're doing here. Um, we are talking about how this matter of success and what it means has shifted in our lifetimes. Those of us who've been around for a little while perceive that. And Denise, you have actually studied that. You have put research to that. Um, and really, it's about what we've done to them. Um, you know, you started to see, when you started to look at this, that there's a lot of hyperactive attention to success in terms of academic, academic achievement, study habits, classroom discipline, peer culture, dropout rates would be the opposite. Um, and as you said, just about no serious attention to classroom experiences and the character of their intellectual engagement. Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing, and I've been doing this now for, that, that book came out in 2001, the research for it was really the late 90s because I had to wait till all the kids graduated before I published the book. That was part of the deal. And over the years, this is what we've seen. So I always start my talks out with how do you define success? And if I say it to students in a student assembly, without fail, usually the top couple of answers are money, grades, test scores, where you go to college, something like that external, extrinsic, as you said in your intro. And that's been consistent now for, for 15 years. Um, and when I ask the same question to the parents, and usually it is the parents of those kids who are coming at the same school that night, it's never that. 
Now, they could be lying, mm-hmm. right? They don't want to say money, but, but, but usually they... I don't they, want my kid to make a lot of money. Well, right. I mean, no one's <laughs> right. going to stand up and say that loud, but they say happiness, well-being, give yeah. back to society, love and be loved. I mean, really different from yeah. what we're hearing from the kids. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think... We, we, I would presume, and I think you would too, that they mean that. But it, what it kind of points out to me is that those, like, we know how to teach these other things, and we invest in them. Right. And we, that it's kind of what I, what I perceive that we have lost our sophistication about investing in those things, even if we believe them. And I think it's in the everyday little messages that schools send and that parents send. When you when you walk into schools, you see um, awards. You, you, one of the first things when you walk into a school is usually the trophy case. Um, sometimes you see pictures of kids with 4.0s on the wall. We publish honor students in the newspaper. Yeah. The first thing a, a parent says when the kid walks in the door is, how'd you do on the history test? Mm-hmm. Right? You're sending those messages that external, extrinsic grades, test scores, that's what matters more. You don't, you know, they're not, they're posting their, their report cards on the fridge. They're not posting, um, you know, their public service activities on the fridge. They're not raving to grandma about that when they talk mm-hmm. about SAT scores. So it's happening. Right. We're sending the messages to these kids to produce that result. And you um, ended up then shadowing students in a wealthy California suburb. And um, this is what you said, evidence of student success was everywhere, but, the, but quite specifically defined and in narrow, quite narrowly in human terms. And, and you, you started to kind of experience and dig into what is the dark side of that ethos of success. Um, yeah, ha, ha, the cost of it, really. The costs are pretty high. I mean, one, one thing um, that we see throughout is a toll on well-being, whether that is sleep deprivation because they're staying up so late to do the myriad activities and the homework and get the grades and social media, right? Or it is anxiety and depression, which is very much related to sleep deprivation and mm-hmm. the pressure. Um, stress, over, in our surveys, I'd say um, well over 75, 80% of kids are stressed. We have a stress and worry scale that is sort of off, off the, the roof. And, um, and unfortunately, even scarier, we have kids who have suicide ideation. We have seen academic achievement pressure lead to suicide completion, um, eating disorders, perfectionism. So, you know, uh, drug use, um, mm-hmm. use of stimulants to stay up. And it's this, this sort of unrelenting pressure, not on all kids, but on many, is leading to some real tolls. O- on top of the fact that they're not even learning the material, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the health tolls are huge, and they're not learning. They're not retaining. They're not mastering. And an irony to me is, you say not on everyone, on many, but on many in what are our most privileged places, yeah. right? Where where in fact there is a higher level of support. Um, it, it does strike me, you know, as I said a minute ago, that all of this is true and well publicized at the same time that we're learning things about brain chemistry that we didn't know before, that we're learning about stress reduction. Um, and also, I, you know, Abraham, I want to, something that you've written about and, and flows into the, the Presence Project, you know, you, I would say this art of of presence, this art of living that is presence, that you, that you define as 
I think you've said the most important quality in being, uh, you probably didn't say a successful physician, but, but you mean in, in the most profound sense, um, but also being human. Um, so, but, and it, it feels, you know, you tell this story about actually having this, the idea of presence had its origins for you in a parking lot here at Stanford. And you went into a museum, but you, you also, even in that moment, were grappling with the fact that, thinking actively about the fact that this is not related to work, and yet you made this decision to kind of give into it, and it informed, I feel, your sense of success ever after. You want to just tell some of that story? Sure. I mean, I think that um, in medical school, you see the same qualities that Denise was speaking about exaggerated because it's the really driven folks who you know, go to pre-med and make it through and get to medical school. And, you know, there's a, there's a moment, and typically it's after they finish their initial training and they're in practice for a couple of years, when they suddenly realize that there's much more to this than, than just a body of knowledge and earning their money and paying off their student loans. And they're looking for meaning. And the meaning comes in those human interactions. And mm. we picked that word presence because it was the one thing that... Uh, doctors told us that they were most unhappy about, that they were not allowed to be present. The machine, the grind of medicine was just forcing them to not have the human interactions as much as they wanted to. And conversely, patients also talked about how the doctor was simply not present. Or there was an intruder in the room. There was the computer. There was this third uninvited guest who kept distracting the doctor's attention. So Mm. I think it's a very human quality. And trying to find ways to bring people who've been conditioned with these external validators of success, such as you know, SAT scores and MCAT scores, and you know, then allow them to, allow myself to go from the parking lot into an art gallery. It takes some deconditioning, if you will, for that to start happening. It's not automatic. Yeah, and you know that... The language of presence and everything that is that you that is contained for you in that word and that experience is very relevant to again like all the science we're learning about stress reduction and brain chemistry. It's interesting, isn't it? We're just not. I, I suspect this happens in human history again and again that that we actually know things and the knowledge hasn't caught up with us us yet. But I think that's the exciting thing about this moment, putting these things together. It's also really hard to do, right? I mean, if you think of how schools are set up, you have to go, go, go all day. You're going to six, seven, eight periods a day, 42 minutes, five-minute passing period. Everyone in the school is busy and working. And, and you almost, it's literally you don't have time to stop and reflect. You're mm-hmm. going to be late. You're going to be, you know. And I think the work world is like that. I, th- I know when I see doctors... You, you know, your appointment is this long and, the, and, and they're always knocking on the door. Your next person's here, right? <laughs> so it, it's, it's really hard And you to can, stop. like, translate into, in, into every activity and yeah. discipline that we yeah. have. Yeah. So you're, you're very busy, but, but not present. Mm-hmm. And if I can just add to yeah. that, the, uh, the other challenge that makes this so different from the Marcus Welby days is that the data set... <laughs> I'm sure that was all completely factually (laughs) true. (laughs) The the data set that accompanies each patient is vast. I mean, it is huge. Uh, One of my colleagues did an experiment on himself where he was doing all these monitoring on himself for a year, Mike Snyder in genetics, and it was a very complex study on the genome, the proteome, but 
what I took away, because it's not my field, was the entire data set for this one individual over one year was more than the entire contents of the Library of Congress. You know, 32 million books, 136 million wow. pieces of information. One person. Admittedly an intense study, but that's what's coming down the pike. And, you know, that points at, I sometimes think, um, for my generation, the talk was of work-life balance. And that may still be a challenge moving forward, but I also think there's this technology life balance for new generations. Because you talk about the need to get unchained from the medical record in order to be present yourself as a human being and to the human being in the room. And again, that is going to be true in all of our disciplines and endeavors. I want to talk about also a cost of this that... Um, you know, Abraham, you, you quote Mark Rothko in this beautiful essay you wrote about presence. Um, I can't remember if this is a quote or if you were paraphrasing, but that art, including the art of living, is an adventure into the unknown world which can be explored only by those willing to take the risks. I think one of the most ironic costs of this this kind of manic drive to success that we've created is that there's a fearfulness that comes with it. Um, a fear of taking the wrong step, of asking the wrong question, of sounding stupid. In the Resilience Project, you know, when you are describing what resilience is, and I, I have to assume you spelled this out because the students you're dealing with need this spelled out, on a small scale, resilience is about raising your hand in class and risk sounding stupid. Yeah, because the, per the person who is your sole judge is standing in front of you. And if you say something dumb, um, it could cost you your grade, it could cost you your letter of recommendation. And then when you think about the ed school here at Stanford, the whole process of learning is asking questions and making mistakes and taking risks. That's actually the process of learning. And then reflecting on those to learn the lesson. So it's also the process of growing up. Yeah, absolutely. It's also like failure, what goes wrong, what you get through that you didn't know how you would get through. This is this is the breeding ground of becoming wise and mature and Absolutely. Yeah. And if you think of what we what I always say to parents is if you think of little kids learning how to walk, mm -hmm. they fall down a lot. That is the process of learning how to walk. And um, and you don't go and move their little feet for them. Yeah. And yet, when they get you older, want to, you want to, <laughs> and you, but yeah. you say, "Oops, a Daisy!" Right? Yeah. You kind of let's get back up. And as they get older, the parents are also very afraid. Yeah, it's very um, scary to let your kid make a mistake or fail or not turn in their homework or get a bad grade or make a a, a social mistake or whatever. And and I think they talk about this thing like the door. We don't want the door to close. We want to keep all doors open, as if there's, as if there's one, you know, what you do in eighth grade is going to affect you for the rest of your life. It's right. not. Right. But there's this every step of the way, this fear that you're going to be closing doors. It's very yeah. pervasive. Yeah. We see a, a version of that in medicine where, I think, for the longest time, one felt that just the facts were what you needed to deal with. So, when you saw someone who was you know, with, a, with a bleeding and in distress, you thought about airway, breathing, circulation, and you didn't stop to think who were they, and that's appropriate, it's an emergency, you shouldn't be right. thinking about that, but the cumulative effect of that, of being in a culture where 
People can talk about, did you hear about the case that came in with an ax in his head? You know, as though the case didn't have a widow and uh, three children. The cumulative effect of that is that when you yourself begin to experience dysphoria, when you begin to, you know, be stressed, you immediately do the same thing you do with that horrible thing you just saw. You, you compartmentalize it. You focus on the symptom. You self-medicate. Mm -hmm. And in medicine, that is the genesis, much of the time, of addiction, which mm -hmm. in turn is the genesis of our extraordinary suicide numbers. Uh, every year it takes one complete class of medical students, about 500 physicians, to replace the number that committed suicide that year. So the human cost to the providers is tremendous. And I think the one thing I admire about the millennial generation is that uh, they have a much better sense of taking care of themselves. Yeah. They're much more willing to push back. Whereas I think what happened to our generation is you're so used to stretching the extra mile, another, you know, another few patients because somebody's ill or you know, there's a last minute this. And you keep doing that and you keep doing that. And they're much better about setting limits, which is what I admire very much about I agree. Them. I see that too. I also see them. That we just, somehow we all agreed to try to, to compartmentalize so, so severely and like check our personal lives at the door, which also meant that we wouldn't admit it if we were sick. Um, and pretending, you know, there's now this phrase, bringing your whole self to work, which I feel millennials are insisting on bringing. I mean, of course, the thing is, we were always bringing our whole <laughs> yeah. selves to work. We just <laughs> pretended like we weren't. And it came out passive aggressive and created all these dysfunctional right. systems that they see. Right. Yeah. And I think, and, and the same is true in school, right? You can't, um, you can't be sick. First of all, kids go to school sick because if you miss a day, you miss so much. Right? And this is bad because they're spreading it around and it's horrible. And then the sleep deprivation and you get sick more often. I mean, it, it turns into this vicious cycle. And I think also, and you were pointing at this, um, there's a truth we don't name that we really need to start naming, which is, um, you know, you take the right path, you get into Stanford, which is the pinnacle, right? You get the dream job, you still have a human life. I mean, there's a story in your book about the kids you met. You know, there was Roberto. Uh, I mean, so this success, the, all the metrics, they're always ephemeral. It's, we don't want it to be that way. I don't know why it is that way, but it is true. Roberto saying to you, I just wish I could get a 4.0. I just want to feel the excitement of getting it. I want to feel it, a 4.0. The thing is, he could get it, and that feeling will last for about 10 minutes. And then he still has all, he has all the human condition he had before, and other things will go wrong. Yeah. And we're not being honest about that. And, and, and it's really hard. And parents want the recipe for getting the Roberto to be successful. And the problem is there's not a recipe, which is really hard to hear as a parent, right? And what's even harder is the things that you really care about, you can't measure and you won't know. It's longitudinal data, right? You're not gonna know how this all works out until it's working itself out and they get older and all that. So, mm -hmm. so it's really hard on the parents Right, there's this thing, here's a, just a little example to show this. You can now check your child's grades at every moment yeah. 
at every time of the day. There's, you know, technology has allowed this to happen, and there are parents who literally say, I, I, I can't stop myself. I, I go on multiple times a day. I, don't even, I know it doesn't even change that much. And the kids go on, and everybody becomes more and more obsessed with check, 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 checking. Yeah. And the stuff that you really care about, yeah. are they kind people? Are they healthy? Are they, do they love learning? Has that spark hit them? Do they, have, do they ask great questions? Do they know what it's like to be a but friend? that's not rewarded. Yeah. No. Yeah. Like, it's not tested. You talked it's about in 10th grade how you fell in love with Walt Whitman. I think that's the first line of your book. And I kind of think part of what you are feeling and in pain about is that uh, enough people aren't falling in love with Walt Whitman or whoever their Walt Whitman would be. It's so true. Mm -hmm. And learning for learning's sake, forget it. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you teach an ungraded class, they don't do the work. You know, it's just not set up. The system is not set up for falling in love with Walt Whitman. Mm -hmm. I, I was thinking as I was preparing of um, Rachel Naomi Remen. Are you familiar with her? She's a physician. Um, she, but she wrote her books, I don't know, a good 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and she's been involved in this matter that I know you're involved in too, which is about humanizing medical education, which is on the one hand, people are training to be healers, and yet that gets sucked out of them. Um, and she said, how she said, and I've always carried this around with me, she said, perfection is the booby prize in life. Ah. It's very isolating, very separating, and it's also impossible to achieve. So you're always struggling to become something you're not. And then she works with people with cancer. And I was also thinking of you, Abraham, because some of your books are about working on, she talks about the edges of life. She said, one of the great joys of working with people on the edge of life, the view from the edge of life is so much clearer than the view most of us have, that what seems to be important is much more simple and accessible for everybody, which is who you've touched on your way through life, who's touched you, what you're leaving behind you and the hearts and minds of other people is far more important than whatever wealth you may have accumulated. And that felt so resonant for me of your dispatches from Johnson City, Tennessee. Yeah, I mean, I love her work. She's, she's tremendous. I think um, we, uh, I want to make one thing very clear, that our medical students come to medicine with all the right qualities. They come with a tremendous capacity to imagine the suffering of the patient. And they come with, you know, big hearts. And uh, a very interesting thing happens to them when they go from the preclinical to the clinical years or what I call the pre-cynical to the cynical years. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that, you know, they, we, and this is our fault, we, we teach them to take that unique story of the patient who comes in and says, you know, I had this pain, it happened at six o'clock last night, I was watching such and such a show, and I immediately thought of my father who died on this day seven years ago. I called my sister Maud in Seattle, and she immediately thought about my father, so, the night the pain kept going, and in the morning I stopped at the church and I lit a candle, and here I am. And we teach the medical students to take that story full of all its emotional content and translate it into this 57-year-old white female was in a usual state of health until three days prior to admission when she noticed the acute onset of, you know, and so we, we sort of rob the disease of everything that made it personal and human. And that is actually necessary for diagnosis, but the the downside is that you can lose your capacity to really imagine the suffering of the patient. The good news is most of us come back to some version of this. 
But that transition, uh, it's consistent, mm. it's still there. It doesn't matter if they come trained in humanities or we select them for being classical violinists and not biochemistry majors, they still have that tendency to go into that phase, but then they come out. I wonder, do they come out because, because they have their own human odyssey and, and they have experiences that are life-changing? I think it's partly because the pressure that Denise was talking about, because we have the same, you know, the continuation of the K-12 story is, right. you know, MCATs and board scores right. and then, you know, getting the, the right residency program. It doesn't really stop. It probably never stops. But there is a point where at least they could feel like, if I'm not, at least if they're not successful, they can relax and try to enjoy this more. And that's, that's a critical moment. And uh, some people never go through this phase, but in my experience, most of us wound up going through it just because of the enormity of the information that you had to swallow. And so you became very bottom line oriented. Is this on the test? If it's not, I don't want to hear about it, you know? Yeah. So Walt yeah. Whitman. Sounded good in pre-med, but after that, it just sort of fades, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then comes oh. back when you have your midlife crisis. <laughs> um, have we, we should collect, um, yes. I'm sorry, I did not prompt you. Hopefully, if you, was it, were there cards on the chairs? So if you, hmm? Yeah, so if you have a, uh, something you'd like to write down, a question, a thought, um, Lily and others, Joe looks like will be, Walking through the room, yeah, collecting those. And then we'll have Sam up here. Um, you know, I, we've been kind of um, diagnosing what's wrong, which we're really good at in journalism and the academy. So let's talk a little bit about um, what we're, well, it kind of, I don't want to even say the positive side of things, but, you know, it just even to, to, to recast it a little bit, I mean, I, um, I, was, I met um, somebody from Apple the other day, Joel Podolny, who's head of the Apple University, which is an internal thing, but in the context of saying something else, he said, success is a terrible context for learning. Which, was, which I thought was just such a, so brilliantly stated, and yeah. it just, it's, it's a truth. And yet that truth isn't built into our places. But I do feel like you both are working in your spheres on how to shift this and that, that it's not all rocket science. Um, so what are, I mean, what are we learning? What are you learning? And I guess what educators can do, what parents can do, and just what we can do for each other as fellow humans. Um, what are you, how are you thinking about this? Yeah, I think the... the, the the, the easiest thing to recognize very soon in your medical career is that all the wonderful science, including the science being done here, doesn't necessarily impact the great burden of disease in our country, which is usually chronic disease. It's an aging population, it's chronic disease. And for that, you really need a different kind of practice of medicine. My, my own belief is that you really need one human being who is trained to express care along with the scientific knowledge and along with the medical care. And, you know, trying to teach that has been extraordinarily hard for a long time. But the interesting thing that's happening right now is the recognition that the distinction between the touchy-feely and the science is completely vanishing. That's uh, really interesting. Some yeah. wonderful work being done here at Stanford by 
Alia Krum and her group and many others across the world are showing us that the placebo effect, for example, is much more complicated than we thought. Um, when I give you a pain pill after your surgery, if it's a placebo, and if you get relief, and about 20% to 30% of people will, we can actually measure a neurobiological change in your brain, you know, these endorphins being secreted. And then if I go in with a morphine antagonist, the pain will come roaring back. So we're learning that placebo is not about conning people. It's really about trying to trigger a certain kind of change. And we're also learning how much we don't know, how much we simply don't understand in this black box. Uh, it's really our brains. I've heard people refer to it, placebo effect is unlocks the brain's pharmacy. But it's, it's really about our, our, our capacity to heal that we don't even know, that, it's tap, that placebo is tapping into. Yeah, exactly. And um, there's, there's some really interesting papers on, uh, for example, in Lourdes, there are hundreds and thousands of miracles, putative miracles, but there's about five to ten very well-documented ones where... Mm -hmm. You know, a tumor that was evident, biopsied, surgeons closed up, and the person went there, prayed, felt something, and felt it vanish. Um, and so clearly the body has the capacity to undo certain things. We do know you can't regrow a limb. That's, that's pretty much out of the question. Yes. Uh, but certain things you clearly can reverse, and I think that's going to be the most tantalizing question in, in science, is how do we tap into the power of the mind to trigger those kinds of changes, which I think are critical. Yeah. There's definitely a corollary in education around relationships because we know that when you feel that there's someone who has your back, when there's an adult you can go to if you have a problem, if your teacher truly cares about you, knows your name, knows who you are, knows how you learn, um, kids are more engaged. They do better. So, you know, one of the things that we do at Challenge Success is we work with schools to take a look at what the current status quo is and all the sort of symptoms that that's leading to and say, it doesn't have to be this way. And that, that's where we say it isn't rocket science. I mean, we know how to get kids to learn. We know that if you feel safe and you feel like you belong and you're excited and engaged, you're more likely going to learn than if you're not. And it's just the whole system is getting in the way of those relationships and that learning being able to happen. And so we work you know, very concretely with schools. Can you change your bell schedule so that not everyone's running around eight times a day? Can you have a later start so that kids can get more sleep because they mm -hmm. need it? Can you mm -hmm. build time in for teachers and students to work together and meet and talk and have advisory? We know how to do this. It's just really hard to break what you know, you, everybody in their life has been through 14, 12, 16 years of school that all look the same, and we're talking about something that's pretty different and scary, particularly mm -hmm. for those schools that have those high-achieving kids, because if it ain't broke, and we're saying, no, 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 it, it's broke. It's broke. It looks different. You might be getting good grades and getting them into college. It's like we have to develop those metrics. I mean, I mean, in medicine, there is this new... And in psychology, right, there's, there's a, it's just crazy that we had to come to this, that, I don't know, but like that we're now developing measures, metrics for what health looks like, which rather than, rather than pathology. Um, so it's almost like we have to develop those metrics for uh, emerging people and it's in schools and elsewhere. Yeah. What does health look like? Well, we have, you know, there, forever we've had these things called protective factors. 
And protective factors are, they kind of do backwards uh, research and they say, oh, these people got through life relatively unscathed. Let's figure out how that happened. And, yeah. um, you know, it, it, they fall into certain categories that at, at Challenge Success we've sort of named playtime, downtime, family time. And it, it turns out that they're protective factors when you can actually play and you um, interact with others and learn how to be in relationship. And when you have downtime and you can handle stress and you can sleep and you can restore the body, and particularly when you have family time, and that's in school, you know, whatever the family is, if that's the teacher or your family, but that adult um, relationship and mentoring. And those, I mean, we do know that we've known for a long time. Kids mm -hmm. have needed these protective factors forever and they will continue. Mm -hmm. um, but how that looks in an age of social media where you're not going down the street necessarily and hanging out and playing with kids and doing make-believe games and taking turns and all those important things that happen in play, play looks really different now because of, of technology. And so we do have to switch how we think about things mm -hmm. given this new generation. I'd like to say that in medicine, uh, the solutions to what ails us are pretty straightforward, and we all know what they are. Patients are very clear on what they want from us. We're very clear on how we'd like to see it, but I think we're recognizing that all of us have to leave our disciplines and be more engaged in societal change as a whole, because the problem isn't residing in medicine. The problem with medical care is that we have a $3 trillion trough that everybody's feeding at, and the moment you try and cut away some piece of that because it's wasteful. There's this big lobby that will get their congressman and their senator to fight you tooth and nail. So I think there's a recognition, especially among the millennials and the, um, the Generation X young faculty, that they cannot not be engaged with the political process in the country. They can't mm -hmm. sort of say, you know, I'm a, I'm a physician. This is not, you know, under, under my job definition. I think there's a sense by all of us that if we don't get engaged beyond medicine, then we will suffer the consequences. And it's certainly in medicine that's true. I ask my medical students, I say, look around. You know, do you, our biggest need in this country is care for the elderly. The biggest need is yeah. for chronic disease. Yeah. Instead, you look around, you see freestanding short-stay surgery centers, freestanding cardiology centers, freestanding cancer centers. Have you ever seen a freestanding geriatric center with a piano that plays in the lobby and a valet parking. That's our need. And it's mm -hmm. all driven by reimbursement and how it's set up. And we can't reform medicine unless we're willing to tackle those kinds of things. And to me, the most exciting thing in medicine is the phenomenon of my medical students getting their MDs and MBAs. And I thought, well, what for? Why do you need an MBA? Uh, I thought maybe they want to go make a lot of money. Every one of them went into primary care. Uh, they're now in the Brigham system, a few of them. They did that because they want to change medicine. They want to reform mm. this thing. Mm. And they know they needed knowledge of finance. And one of them I just learned has dropped out because he's running for office in Colorado. <laughs> and that is the kind of change I think our generation needs to encourage. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that... Um that started to strike me a few years ago when I was on college campuses is how many kids are double and triple majoring. Mm. And at first I thought that was about this treadmill. And probably it is sometimes. But I also started to think that it's, it's a manifestation of new generations putting us back together again, right? Just like you're saying. That in fact, to be whole, 
and to integrate all the things we need to integrate to be whole. Um, it's not just this discipline over here and that discipline over there. Like they, they get it, and, and it, but what pains me is that right now, uh, people who have that impulse, and in fact that intelligence, I would say, in their bodies, even if it's not conscious, um, are still having to work with these awkward structures, right? right? Where these things are divided, and you have to f- personally put them together. Right. And we still teach in little boxes called chemistry and algebra and English. And, you know, you're trying to get the kids out of the mine. You know, you're going to multidisciplinary experts to get those kids out of the mine. And, and to get the kids what? To, out of the mine. I'm just using that as an example when those boys were trapped. Right? Oh, the mind. The mind. Okay. You don't just call one expert. Mm -hmm. They had psychologists, they had water experts, they had engineers, they had military. You know, you call, and we solve problems in an interdisciplinary way. And that's how we want to help really change K 12 education to make Mm -hmm. it much more about that. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard when you've got an English department and a math department and a science department. And it's hard. Yeah. Which is to say, making it more relevant to actually how life works. Exactly. And I think, you know, those double and triple majors, part of that is, well, if I'm paying all this money for college, yeah. I want to get as much out, I want to suck the life out of this, right? Yeah. And, that, yeah. and it's only a couple more hours. Oh, it's only three more classes. I might as well be a psychology major and this. Yeah. Um, sometimes we see it as they're double majoring because their mom or dad wants them to major in computer science. But, but they, they want to major in They dance. want art history. Right, so you <laughs> yeah. can do that if you double major for yeah. mom and dad. But I do, I do also think there's this intelligence about it that just is actually working with, with the wrong forms. Yeah. So let's open this up. Sam, introduce yourself. I wrote your name down. Sam Fayuna. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Sam Faina. I'm a senior on campus studying political science. Um, parents are also from Ethiopia, so I, I, oh. I resonated with that, yeah. that thought you said there. When, uh, right before I asked the questions, uh, I just wanted to note, when I was asked to read the questions for tonight's event, I was told by the Haas staff to represent all 7,000 undergrads. <laughs> so I will try to do that, but... Please bear with me as I go through that process. I, I'm, I'm actually going to overrule that. Just, I'm just going to say, would you just represent yourself? Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. So just to start off the conversation, uh, collecting all the thoughts that you had, uh, the first question is, what's a time when each of you has failed? Um, you all, the person wrote, you all went to the right schools and got the right jobs after all, or at least one conception of it. Um, so I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. Well, I, I think that my life, the real education of my life was all the failures. I mean, mm-hmm. that is really what shaped me. So I began uh, medical school in Ethiopia, actually, and uh, a very nice school run by the British Council for East Africa. And then civil war broke out. And so suddenly in the middle of my third year of medical school, I was adrift. And uh, it was the worst thing that could have ever happened to me, I thought. And I also heard the word expatriate for the first time and didn't realize that they were talking about me, and expatriates were encouraged to leave. The medical school was closed down, and the students were sent to the countryside in a Cambodian-style educate the masses. And so I left, and my parents had come here a little before that, reading the writing on the wall, and I joined them in New Jersey 
and I could not get back into medical school because I, I didn't have an undergraduate degree. In most parts of the world, you go straight from high school to pre-med to medical school. And I began to work as an orderly. And I think it was the hardest part of my life at the time. I thought this was really, you know, the pits. Um, and I was working night shift and sharing a car with my parents. And, but I look back now, and if I have any sort of reputation in America, I think it's come from the fact that I got to see what happens to the patient in the 23 hours and 57 minutes that the doctors are not in the room. <laughs> and I feel a great uh, solidarity with my colleagues in nursing, nursing assistants. And um, you know, I think that that, that that failure, so to speak, turned out to be uh, the biggest success. And I, I don't want to go on, but I would say that almost everything I learned, and I hope undergraduates really listen to this. Mm -hmm. In fact, I know Dr. Costanzo and others have a whole project around resilience and failures. Uh, that is really where your education comes. The rest of it is fluff. I wanted yeah. to say, too, I can talk about mine in one second, but that really was the genesis for the Resilience Project. And I want to give the shout out to Adina Glickman, because I, I didn't start the Resilience Project. I'm one of the uh, early uh, videos on it. But Adina Glickman really came up with this notion that the kids at Stanford um, do, feel like they have to be perfect and don't know how to handle it when they make a mistake. And mm -hmm. so her idea, and this came from, from a group at Harvard that was doing this, was to interview professors and have them on tape talking about their failures and, um, and to show what they learned from it. And there's actually this great video where we have people in the middle of White Plaza, which is the center of Stanford, holding up an A, a B, a C, or D, or an F. And you're supposed to kind of drive through White Plaza and, and hold up your lowest grade. And they have the um, chief of the hospital, uh, chief, what do you call it, the um, you know person, chief, what's it called? The boss Chief call. Medical Officer held, held up an F, right? And then showed the name tag that said, you know, Stanford Hospital. So it's this idea that that, that grade doesn't matter and that to, to be resilient, everybody's going to fail. And, and we all have stories. Um, and I have many, many, many stories of, of yeah. failures that I can't even begin to relate. Um, you know, f even as a teacher, I had spitwads in my classroom my first year teaching. P kids were throwing things at each other. We should right? say this is in high school, not at Stanford. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Um, but it made me realize that the system was crazy and not working. And I had to rethink how I was going to teach you know, high school English, because I was, I was looking for the Walt Whitman dreamers, and they needed a, 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 you know, a, a different mm -hmm. path, mm -hmm. uh, more unique to them. I mean, um, I, I'll, just, I'll just say here that every time I get introduced, like I did tonight, which was so gracious and beautiful, but it's like, that's, we, are, we have lived in this presentational culture, and I always feel, every time, I feel, I cringe a little bit because like, I know the real story. <laughs> and it's not that all of those credentials don't matter, but the real story, yeah, it's just full of more. It's most of the time for a lot, you know, for many years, even the things that look like a success eventually often feel like failure so much of the time or just, very uncertain, and I, you know, I, I, I have a. If I look at my resume now of my twenties, 
I kind of walked into all these adventures, and it looks so impressive. And I know that every single minute of every single day of every all of those years, I was constantly second-guessing myself and wondering what I should be doing that would be better. And um, I actually think this is one reason that real friendship across generations is really important. I think it's really a calling for this century because the... The wisdom of young adulthood, I think, is actually an urgency and an impatience, right? And, and this, this longing and this aspiration to see the world whole and make it better. We want that. But there's something so relaxing about living for a while and knowing in your body that life is long and knowing that there will be another side to whatever is happening. And so, I mean, that's really the experience you have of failure. But I will say, people often ask me, like, what are, what are the qualities of the wisest people you've interviewed? And, and what I can also tell you is, is, as you continue to go through life, these credentials matter less and less. It's like people either make a worthy life or they don't. Mm-hmm. And um, the wisest people I've interviewed are not... Uh, and the and the most successful, I would say, in human terms, um, are su- are not successful in spite of what's gone gone wrong for them, but be- because of how not just how they have walked through that, but how they integrated it into their wholeness on the other side. You know, this you also talk about this note: the difference between healing and curing, or healing and fixing. A healed person is also has that wound. That wound is those wounds. These wounds are part of us, but they are also how we grow. This is this strange thing about our species. Switching gears to a different uh, subject, uh, for students of low socioeconomic status or who may face structural barriers to learning, like educational segregation or implicit bias in curriculum. Um, should we be prioritizing the teachings of Walt Whitman um, when there are so many things that are hindering students from even the core act of learning? And I need a disclaimer that I am not saying we should teach Walt Whitman. I <laughs> Really, there are some issues there. Um, but I would say the notion of allowing someone to fall in love with a piece of literature and to use literature to teach empathy, I think that's what I think every kid should, should do. You know, I, I read Cutting for Stone and was deeply moved. I, when I read literature, I'm deeply moved. Why I became an English teacher was because I was deeply moved and I wanted others to be deeply moved. And I do think that there's a lot we can do around, um, you, you know, culturally sustainable pedagogy is the is the sort of term that we talk about and how we think about it and what we do. But I think at core, everybody deserves to be moved. Everybody deserves to be uh, curious and have that curiosity met with real answers to real questions and that spark, that love of learning. Um, and if it's Whitman for some and someone something else for someone else, Go for it. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in trying to teach medical humanities to physicians, to allowing them to engage with literature. Because, you know, if you're in your 20s, there's a limit to how much you can imagine of that other person's experience. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about fiction as a, 
as an author says, it's the fiction is the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives. And you know, if you read uh, Bastard out of Carolina, uh, you will understand child abuse in a quite different way than if you read it in a textbook. And, and if you read uh, The Death of Ivan Illich by Tolstoy, you will truly get end of life in a way that you would never get if you took a mm. end of life course. And so, you know, the challenge is where do you find time in a very busy curriculum? Do you make it mandatory or do you make it elective? And so we struggle with that. I should mention parenthetically, today is Chekhov's birthday. Oh, <laughs> yay. Actually, on, on that theme of direct action and trying to find your path, um, one of you is wondering, um, in high school, someone told me not to prepare the path for myself, but to prepare myself for the path. How can we translate this to our current system? That's what we're trying to do, right? I mean, what I say now is we have no idea the jobs that our current kindergartners and first graders are going to hold. So as educators, boy, that makes it tough, because what are we educating them for, right? So instead of thinking, oh, they're going to be X, and now let's plan backwards and educate them this way, we are educating them for, for the path, for multiple paths, and to have a capacity to listen and to question and a capacity to reason and think critically and also be creative and take risks. And I think, um, I was just at the longevity conference that Stanford put on, and the average age of the baby born today is going to be 100. And what does that mean for education? Why would you smush all of or your you education? Have to be done by your 20, by the time you're <laughs> right? Yeah, it's ridiculous. That's crazy. Yeah. And given all the changes in technology and the jobs in the world, yeah. you're going to have to keep learning, and so you have to know how to learn yeah. and want to. Yeah. And it's fun. And it's fun. Switching to the uh, perspective of an employer or a mentor or a professor, uh, what can uh, each of those uh, roles and people do to encourage alternate ways of thinking about success, more from the extrinsic to the intrinsic uh, uh, mode of um, viewing success? Well, maybe I'll start and say that uh, I actually think that my mentees are teaching me what success means, because mm. I think the millennials uh, they really have a much better sense of what's important. And, you know, sometimes our generation, you know, complains about that, that this is just a job for them, not a calling. But on the other hand, they are much more ready to put their family and their children first in a way that I regret that, uh, you know, I didn't do. And uh, so I've learned from them uh, to be flexible, to be uh, much more concerned about their personal health than I think we were. So I'm not sure that I impart as much to them as they impart to me. But that said, I think a lot of, when I do impart things that are not strictly medical in career, it's, it's mostly about just relaxing and making sure that they're enjoying the journey. I have a very simple definition of success, which is, uh, any day above ground is a good day, you know? <laughs> so, given the alternative, and I see plenty of that, so, um, you know, if you start with that premise, and it's not hard to do in medicine, then really every day is a good day. How can you not bring your best to it? And the last question I have here um, is from a young person who went to a competitive school in Palo Alto. Um, <laughs> and finds uh, him or herself struggling to question what success looks like. 
Um, I feel like I have few role models, even the three of you have um, uh, successful careers uh, that were explored in your introductions. And this person is curious to hear your thoughts about um, career, uh, like mentorship building, how to create some of these pipelines, um, and a final kind of direct action to uh, help students expand some of their opportunities. Yeah, we hear this question a lot from kids. And um, there's a couple of different answers. One is that people assume that there's a straight and narrow path. That I knew when I was 18 that I was going to be sitting up here today. And I can tell you, absolutely not. I didn't even think I should be up here with it's... this guy anyway, right? So <laughs> now. So I, I think that idea of a straight and narrow path is um, is is really outdated. And as a young person, so part of this is your prefrontal cortex, getting into the medical side of things, is not fully developed. And the prefrontal cortex is what allows you to sort of see and plan ahead. And so in your head, you think you have to have it all figured out, and you think it's very linear. Get the grades, get into college, go to grad school, have a career, get to money. That has been said over and over and over to us. And what, what we're trying to say is, you have no idea where your life is going to lead, and so you have to be open to the possibilities. Find lots of different mentors. Take lots of different classes and things that are exciting. Pursue things that, that bring you joy, mm -hmm. um, because you're just never going to know. I, I was supposed to be a journalist. You know, and it, it just didn't happen for a whole bunch of reasons, and I fell into education and loved it. Um, and then I didn't take a, a normal path for a professor. I'm looking at Deborah Stefik in the audience because she kept saying to me, come on, let's do the normal path. And I was like, no, I, I want to do something a little different. Um, and, and, it, and it's definitely paid off, but there's no way I could have foreseen this. No. No. Uh, my, my advice probably would not be what parents want to hear necessarily, but it would be to follow your heart, that you really... I mean, I teach a course called Thinking Matters with uh, Dr. Kerry Costanzo who's here. Mm. And uh, there's a number of computer science folks, who, kids who take that class. And I can see many of them respond so positively to this. And, and uh, you know, you wonder, is it their driving passion that's putting them in computer science? Or is it their read of what the market needs or what's trendy? And um, I always think that, um, you know, if you don't follow your heart, you'll probably have some regrets, and they'll be you know, too late for you to do much about it. Um, in my case, I got off the treadmill of medicine at some point because I was so moved by the HIV experience during that era when there were no treatments, and it was you just You were in a, Tennessee. I was in, in Tennessee in a small rural town. Rural area, yeah. And uh, I really thought that if I didn't do something, I would die. I would just die from the stress of it, and I wanted to do HIV care the rest of my life, and I'm, I still am, and many people have fallen off the way. But I knew I would have to take a break, and I decided to go to the Iowa Writers' Workshop and uh, you know, cashed in my retirement and my 401k and all that stuff. And it was considered academic suicide, professional mm -hmm. suicide, mm -hmm. but I felt that I had to do it. And then I was uh, finishing there and ready to take an academic job, and I had some really good opportunities to stay at the University of Iowa, a great school, or uh, University of North Carolina. I was wanting to hire me, and I suddenly realized I'd never write in those places because I would be so busy trying to crank out NIH grants and all that. And so I took a job in the last place on earth that anyone 
would consider prestigious, which is I went to Texas Tech El Paso. I could literally yeah. throw a stone out of my window and hit uh, someone in Juarez, Mexico. And yet it was the most beautiful place to practice because in that county hospital we saw everything uh, in young people, untreated. It felt very meaningful, but my evenings were mine to write and to develop my voice and um, my weekends were mine. And I eventually got hired to Stanford in a roundabout way, largely because of that. And had I come to Stanford in the first place, yeah. just about now I would be losing my tenure and heading to El Paso, Texas, probably. Ah. <laughs> so uh, I tell students that life is ironic. It's never going to be yeah. the path that you, that you planned. And uh, if you're not open to what your heart's telling you, within reason, I mean, yeah. within reason, then you're, you're probably not going to be as happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just want to add, because there is research to back this up, that, that we actually spent a year at Challenge Success looking at college outcomes and asking, does it matter where you go to college? And we looked at it in terms of finances. We looked at it in terms of job satisfaction. We looked at it in terms of well-being. And all the research points to, for the most part, it really doesn't matter. Um, if you are a, a person uh, who comes from a very poor background, a person of color, it may matter more in terms of finances than for others, but for the vast majority, um, whether you go to community college or you go to Stanford, uh, in terms of job satisfaction in the future, in terms of well-being, and in terms of, of really finances, um, it's, not, it's not the name. So that, that should bring well, what you... What is it that makes a difference then, if it's, it's not... It's actually the level of engagement you bring to college. And it would be the same in the workplace and the same in, in the hospital. And I think when you say engagement, you're not just talking about whether you get really good grades. No, it's the opposite, right? It's, it's some of your most engaged people get the worst grades because they're out there going deep into what they want to do and they're not following mm-hmm. the rules and the teacher doesn't know what to do with that. No, it's, it's, it's engagement where you are excited and passionate about what you're doing. You're involved in your community. It turns out that's very important. It could be the bowling league or a church community or whatever, but you are you feel a part of that place, you have mentors, and you find ways to apply what you learn. So internships or deep research, it's actually to give a shameless plug for the Haas Center, what the Haas Center does for for kids here at Stanford. Yeah, you know, I want to say that it's just a lot of what looks like success at some point looked like a really stupid decision Mm -hmm. in the beginning. And often for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I love your idea. You're, you're using the word ironic. Because also some of the most devastating experiences you will have in life will be what felt like a success. Will be the things you, most, you wanted most deeply. And it might be a job or it might be a relationship. But those also are these formative failures. Mm-hmm. And then it's so true that if... I don't know why we gave ourselves or anyone this completely, this notion that is not based in reality, that, that there could be a path. Because if you knew the path, I mean, if, if I think about this sometimes now because my project, which looks like a success now, but to me, I'm so aware that it felt like a failure for, for such a long time. And, but if any, but if anybody could have, shown me what I would do eventually, I would have gotten here by too straight a path. Right. And it wouldn't be what it is. Right. Right. 
so it really is about throwing yourself out there. And yeah, it's not just about the heart, but really taking your passion and your heart as seriously as you take these other more pragmatic things. Right. That will, will bear fruit. I, I want to be careful that we're not sounding too privileged. And I, and I understand that there are things you have to do mm-hmm. to make a living, to have shelter, to have food. And by all means, you need to do that. But if you can keep in mind that while you're doing that, there, there are choices even within that, if you're lucky enough to have those choices, to, to, to follow your heart, to go the route that, that um, or at least you do those things, but on the side you have this, this thing, this passion project, this, this, this thing that you do that makes your heart sing. Eventually, if you're really lucky, you find a way to get those to come together. But mm-hmm. I, I am aware of, of, the, of the real privilege I had and that many in the room have and that this could sound like a bunch of hooey to someone out there who says, well, this is great, but I've got to pay the rent and I've got to do this. And that's why the parents push their kids in these, in these directions. But the reason we did the research for the college white paper is to say it's, it's not the name of the school that leads to the money. Mm-hmm. That, that's, a, that's a false correlation. I would add to that that I've had a chance to tell freshmen at Stanford that this wonderful Yeats uh, verse, which uh, I think presents the the question to us, and Yeats says, "The intellect of man, the intellect of man, is forced to choose perfection of the life or perfection of the work, mm-hmm. and if it chooses the latter, must forego a heavenly mansion raging in the dark." Mm. Meaning it's not all grades, it's not all, you know, and I'm certainly guilty of, you know, having worked so hard, perfection of the work, that I lost yeah. track of the, the life part. And you really must see that. And sometimes you won't see that just by my telling you. You have to live it and get there. Yeah, I, 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 it's, it is also on my mind, it was on my mind as I prepared for this, that in some ways this is a rarefied conversation. Um, something that came up, um, in some of the conversations I've had at the Haas Center in the last couple of weeks is the problematic way we work with the success story, mm-hmm. which is often about somebody who comes from a really unlikely, right? I mean, this is the way it's crafted, right? Completely unlikely background. Really, the way the narrative goes, an inferior place. I mean, that's assumed. A place without opportunity, who had nothing going for them, right? And then... The success is in achieving every all the ways we design we define success, right? Um, and I think that also gets at our need because there's a lot of success, and also it's often about leaving that place they came from. And we do have to learn how to see and honor all the f- forms of successful life which are not measured in a job title. It's really important. I, I hear this from, um, there's, I, have, I work with a lot of students who are trying to figure out when to have kids. And if you leave the workplace to have kids, and then I'm just a mom. And this idea that you're just a mom, first of all, it's the hardest job you will ever do. It's way harder than any other job I've ever yeah. had is being a mom. And I love it, yeah. but it's really hard. Yeah. And that idea of, I think, and it is literally life-giving. It is literally life-giving. <laughs> and I think adding a thinking, feeling, empathetic, morally driven person to this world is 
probably the most important thing you can do. Um, or helping others. If you, I'm not saying everyone has to be a parent, but helping others to live in the way that people should live. And, and that has nothing to do with what you do for a living. Right. Yeah. Well, so what I feel this is circling around to is, is actually the notion of vocation, which I feel in the 20th century, we really um, collapsed to be synonymous with a job title. Mm. And, um, and it's our, it's our calling as human beings, not just our calling to a profession. And in fact, I think the reality of life is that we have many voca- you have many vocations in the course of a life. And even if you have the job you want, there are times when your parenting or your relationship or your caregiving for a parent is a much more uh, important part of your vocation than the job you're doing, right? And also, yeah, and I think also this idea that to work in order to put food on your table and feed your family is also a perfectly, is meaning, that makes it meaningful work. Um, I think service, right? That, that, that somehow the vocation to me, and I feel like if we develop a more expansive sense of vocation that is in sync with what we're learning and actually what we desire, um, that vocation, it will, be, it will be something multifaceted. It will be the work we do, which at times may define us and at times may not. It will be the people we love. It will be the people we serve. It will be our community. Um, I feel like even that could be kind of a mental shift, like taking in placebo as actually a superpower mm. rather than a trick. I love the idea of a calling. I mean, obviously, I, I think that that was how I felt about medicine. It was truly a calling. I couldn't imagine something more romantic than, than that. And sometimes I feel that there's, you know, there's too many mercenary decisions made to go into medicine, not necessarily because of a calling. But that's rare. Most people do feel a calling. But I must say, I think the millennials are much more willing to truly follow their calling. Um, mm-hmm. I have a son who's a musician in Santa Fe. He's 32 years old. Um, what he really is is a barista. <laughs> I have one of those too. Yeah. <laughs> but he's a musician, and uh, you know his music's good. Um, but I fear for him. I, you know, I had all mm-hmm. the traditional worries about, and I had a conversation with him, and he and he just stopped me in my tracks by something he said. He said, "Dad, I just want to make enough." Because I would say, "Well, how, you know, how do you, how are you going to hit the big time?" And right. he says, "Dad, I'm not necessarily looking for that. I just want to make enough money." and doing this thing I love to do. I mean, what more could I say about that? So I said, go for it, you know. I hope you can cover your car insurance, but otherwise it's a... (laughs) (laughs) And I think that, you know, the world needs more of that, perhaps. And, and we hear kids who say, I don't have a passion. I'm eight years old. What's my passion? I'm 12 years old. You know, I've got to write it on my college application what my passion is. And, and you just say to them, it will come. You know, and, and it yeah. comes from being open and curious yeah. and taking risks and, and meeting Stepping others. Stepping into uncomfortable places where you may fail. Right. Yeah. But I don't want people to get hung up on this thing called a calling and that you need it when you're eight. No. Because you just, I mean, right, that's, you run the, whatever you then say is it, everybody wants it. 
Um, it will come. It will come. So if I ask each of you right now, you know, not what do you do, this is the, I think the distinction is I feel like we are raising people now who are as concerned with who they will be as what they will do. So if I, I, if I ask you, you know, not what you do, but what is, what is, how do you understand your vocation at this, or your vocations at this moment in time? Like, how would you start to answer that question? This has always been with me, actually f from my grandfather's story, which is, uh, I'm Jewish, and there's a notion called tikkun olam, which means to repair the world. And the rule is that you don't have to fix it, and you don't have to do it alone, but you gotta try. And that's how I've seen sort of every part of my life is doing something to try and make the world a better place. And this was the thing that happened to kind of catch me and I fell into it when I wrote the book. I didn't know the book was going to start me down this path to have this nonprofit and do all this stuff. But it is fulfilling to help people and feel like I'm part of repairing the world. So, I mean, I'm, I'm always, you know, having to pinch myself that I'm really at Stanford. I'm actually sitting here talking with you and people wanting to listen to us. To me, anyway. I mean, I know they want to listen to you. I've gotten so many emails about. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, I, I walk around feeling like any moment someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, "We're on to you," back to El Paso. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, I, I almost, uh, and I also feel like as a writer, I have the great luxury of having the most beautiful day job in the world. And so, no matter what happens to me, I love seeing patients. It's truly a calling, and uh, I can do that anywhere in the world. Mm. And uh, it doesn't really matter how much I get paid as long as I, you know, can feed my, myself and my children who are now fine. So in that sense, I think my son was right. Finding this thing that will both be something you love and that will pay your bills. Uh, that, that is really the calling. Mm -hmm. Or as he's doing it, you find the thing you love and you find the thing that pays your bills. And yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Abraham, there's a poem by E.E. E. Cummings... Um, that you quoted. Do you know what I'm talking about? The heart. Poem? I carry your heart. Uh, yeah. Indeed, yeah. I wondered, would you talk about why you care about this so much? I feel like it is it is related to what we've been talking about. Even the way we we've always used the language of heart as a metaphor for all this other stuff that isn't measurable. Like in our bodies, we've known. And now, actually, science is showing us this interactivity. Um, I don't know. Do you think this fits what we've been talking about? Yeah, I think I think it does. I mean, I remember. I mean, I've always loved that poem. Uh, for those of you who don't know it, it's you know, I carry your heart. In I, my I heart. have it. I was going to ask yeah. you to read it. Yeah. Would you? Yeah. Talk about what you love. I can't about recite it. it if that's what you're going to say. Can you? I can read it if. Um, yeah. You can recite I, it. Too. I don't want to stumble reciting it. <laughs> I printed it out for you. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. You're going to make me cry. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. And whatever is done by only me is your doing, my darling. I fear no fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. 
I want no world, for beautiful you are my world, my true. And it's you are whatever a moon has always meant, and whatever a sun will always sing is you. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life, which grows higher than soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. Lovely. So I, um, I've always loved this poem. And I was asked to address by my boss here at Stanford, who's a cardiologist. Couldn't say no. <laughs> to speak at this big congress of cardiology in San Diego Convention Hall. You know, 10,000 cardiologists floating around. And uh, I was going to give the opening keynote. I didn't have slides. I didn't have molecules. I didn't have catheters. I was, you know, and I decided that I was going to make this my theme. Mm. Because they were going to spend five days talking about the heart. Mm. And not necessarily acknowledging this metaphorical heart. And I, you know, I think there was pin drop silence because everybody was waiting to see when, you know, how, how quickly I was going to bomb with this particular theme. <laughs> but I think it, uh, it struck a chord. It mm -hmm. struck a chord. You know, the, the person who comes to see you, as William Carlos Williams said so many years ago, uh, they are not a liver or a heart or a kidney. They are one guy or gal uh, with a unique problem. And his wonderful quote was that the physician on the front line must fall back on his or her own sense of self. That is your instrument. Mm. I mean, your instrument is not the EKG or the stethoscope. It's your sense of self combined with all the scientific knowledge and the human understanding that you bring. And uh, I just love that poem. And I, my, my boss, I don't think he'll mind my telling this because I published this. He has twin daughters. And they have both tattooed the words, I carry your heart, uh, you know, over their sixth rib on either side. So that it doesn't matter that it's a sixth rib, but it is a sixth rib. <laughs> And I was very touched by that, you know, so yeah. they're, they're, they're separated now, they live in different cities, but I carry your heart, you know. There's some place you were talking about, let me look, find this in my notes. Um, you're talking about presence and... Um, about what, sorry? About presence, yeah. about your learn, thinking about presence, and you said, disease is easier to recognize than the individual with the disease is related to, the, to what you just said. And it feels to me like that, that can be carried over to all of our, our encounters with each other in all of our spaces, um, especially in a moment like this. And I think that's very fitting for being convened here by the Haas Center for Public Service. Um, it's, it's our, our, so you know what we've kind of circled around to here is our presence to ourselves and how inextricable that is to be meaningful, to be, to be absolutely connected to our presence to others. And that will change us. And that will shape the path. So thank you all for coming. Thank you so much, the two of you, for your wisdom. Have a good evening. <laughs>